everybody! Welcome to my full movie review of 1973's The Vault of Horror. We're gonna get all into this movie, so uh, so let's go. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit first about the movie. Don't wanna really waste any time here. Got quite a bit to unravel. This was the second movie in the Tales from the Crypt thing of movies. The first one being Tales from the Crypt 1972, and they immediately turned around and put this one out in 1973. And no offense, but you can kind of tell that it was a little, maybe a little rushed. I don't know. I'll get into it. So again, like the previous one, um, it is a British anthology horror film made by Amicus Productions. It is based on stories from the EC Comics that were written by Al Feldstein. The film is directed by Roy Ward Baker and filmed on location at Twickenham Studios. Uh, it's got a fairly large cast, not as many well-known names, at least for me, um, like it was in 1970, the 1972 Tales from the Crypt. So this movie stars Terry Thomas, Dawn Adams, Denholm Elliott, Kurt Jurgens, Tom Baker, Michael Craig, Terrence Alexander, Glynis Johns. She's the one I recognized. She was the mother, Winifred Banks, and Mary Poppins, the original Mary Poppins. And then she also was the grandma in 1999's Superstar, which was her last movie, apparently. So yeah, so there also starred um, Mike Pratt, Robin Nedwell, Jeffrey Davis, Daniel Massey, and Anna Massey, who are brother and sister in real life. None of these stories are actually from the Vault of Horror comics. All of them, but but one, appeared in Tales from the Crypt. There is an exception being from Shock Suspense Stories. And I'm getting all this information off Wikipedia, so I mean, if you want to look more into it, there's tons of stuff out there. But another big thing with this movie is it omits the Vault Keeper character from the comics. So there's no narrator or like person that's bringing these people together and going over it. it's all them just for themselves so there's no vault keeper there's no crypt keeper there's no you know there's nothing like that like there was in the 1972 tales from the crypt movie this movie was produced by charles w fries and max rosenberg it was written by milton sabosky and the music was by douglas gamely cinematography is by dennis and coop it is edited by oswald hoffenreichter it was distributed by 20th Century Fox Cinerama Releasing Corporation, and it was released in March 1973 and runs 83 minutes. Now, one thing to remember before getting into this that I found kind of interesting, the way I got these movies is I, I bought the Tales from the Crypt Vault of Horror collection, like it came together, and it was a double feature on a DVD. Now, what I found out is that was released in September of 2007, and this version is apparently very edited. The US theatrical PG re-release replaces some of the scenes with still images and things like that. Like it's it's pretty it's pretty noticeable. Apparently the original release theatrically in the US was uncut and R-rated. So they knocked it all the way down to PG. So I feel a little a little robbed in the fact that I didn't get to see the complete you know movie. I don't know how crazy it got, but apparently it was supposed to be a lot more gory and messed up to the point where it was an R rating and then they dropped it down to PG. So what I saw and what pretty much probably everyone who has the double feature of these two saw is the watered down version of Vault of Horror. And again, I'll get into that later, but you can definitely tell in some parts that they did cut it back almost in a uh, comical way. So yeah, so that's a little unfortunate. It says here though, there is an uncensored version that was shown um, in 2008 on the British TV channel Film 4. And then if you want to, you can get it on Blu-ray by Scream Factory, which is the uncensored version. So I may down the road go check that out. 
and get one of those and just see uh, the difference. There's just, there's a lot of like controversy on like if certain scenes were cut or not, or, you know, things like that. People aren't really sure. So it's just kind of all over the place a little bit with that. So, I mean, maybe down the road, I'll go and try to get a hold of the, the other um, copy of that. There's still some gore in it and it really doesn't hurt it too much. It's just when they try to hide some of the gore in the ways that they did it, it's very noticeable. So that's what makes it kind of silly, particularly in the first vignette, which we'll get into. So we'll go ahead here and get started in this movie. Again, it's kind of li- it's, it's like the 1972 Tales from the Crypt version where it's an anthology and it starts out with a group of people coming together and learning about why they're there. So this one's got, it's just five dudes. They get onto an elevator one by one. They all getting picked up in the elevator at an office in London. They end up in the basement or like a sub-basement kind of thing, but they, that's not where they were intending to go. And when they come out of the elevator, they're like, what's going on? And they end up walking into this large like lounge, like um, gentleman's club kind of thing. It's got like a big table in the middle, five chairs, one for, you know, one for each of them, so a bunch of drinks and things like that. It's very well furnished and elaborate. And then the elevator door closes and there's no buttons to open the door back up. So they're like, well, crap. So they're just hanging out and and kind of getting to know each other. And they start having having drinks and they start talking about dreams. And so this one is all about just different recurring nightmares or dreams that they're having. But then at the end, they're all just like, well, I mean, that didn't happen to me. You know, it's a dream. So that's how it kind of gets started. That's so this is it's, it's similar to the to the Tales from the Crypt version, except for it's not being narrated by a keeper and it's it's not more like a a crime thing so the first story in this anthology is called midnight mess it is from the tales from the crypt version edition number 35 this is also part of one of the tales from the crypt episodes i recently did called morning mess which was about a man who was a reporter and found out there were these ghouls killing and eating homeless people this is similar to the sense but it's not quite ghouls but it's 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 similar to the sense of a man stumbling upon a situation in like a town or an area that he didn't realize was more sinister than he thought so that's pretty much what this one is so this one starts out with this guy um his name is harold his father passes away and then he finds out that his dad like left all the stuff to his sister and he's real jealous about that and so he goes and hires this guy to find his sister and she's in some town random town and he's kind of a scumbag. So as soon as he gets the information on his sister, he kills the guy who like brings it to him. And then he goes to to this town. And it's a strange village. And it's like, you know, he doesn't feel like super welcome. He gets there and he goes to this restaurant that's called Restaurant. And it's about seven o'clock and he wants to have dinner. And they're like, well, sorry, we're getting ready to close. It's getting dark. And there's like a, just one other couple of men there. And it's kind of weird. And he's like, that's weird. Why would you close down? It's almost dinner time. And he's like, well, we close down when it gets dark here. You should get out of here. And he's like, right. So he goes back to his sister's house because the first time she didn't answer. And when he knocks, it's kind of funny because he does this. He's kind of creepy. Like his he just like she answers the door. She's like, what up? And she, he's like, it's your brother, Harold. And he has like this real creepy grin. And she's like, get in here quick. She starts to explain to him, like, there's some stuff going on in this town. You need to hide when it's dark out. So he gets he, he gets in there with his sister and he's talking to her. And, and he's even more creepier because he's just like, I've come to see you. After all, you are my sister. Why have you buried yourself in a place like this? Why is everyone so afraid of the dark here? Because of them. Them? 
There have been 17 cases so far. Bodies found with every drop of blood drained out of them. Now, tell me why you wanted to find me so badly. Father died four weeks ago. I've been looking for you ever since. You're his heir, you know. You always were his favorite. He left you everything. For as long as you live. He just looks at her and he's like, you know, as long as you're still alive, you'll get the money. And she's like, what? And then he whips out this switchblade and kills her. And so after he kills her, he's still really hungry, I guess. And he notices that the restaurant isn't closed like it was saying. So he's like, what, what up with that? So he goes over to this restaurant and now it's full of people. And they're all getting ready to have a meal. And he just walks in and the waiter there is like, you know, hey, this is what we're having. It's like a five course thing. You get like a juice and a roast and a soup and all this stuff. And he's like, cool. And so he gets the juice and he drinks it and immediately tastes, it's really weird. And it's, it's a red liquid. And it really, I mean, I think it's like tomato juice or something. But you find out, you know, it's blood. Everything's blood. And even the people around him are eating like potatoes and blood or, you know, it's all in blood. And earlier they made a, a kind of a point of showing this big mirror in the restaurant and now it's closed. And so he starts freaking out about this blood. That's when everyone in the restaurant realizes what, you know, this man isn't one of us. Like, oh my gosh. And so then one of the waiters, for some reason, comes back and pulls out, pulls open the mirror and you see that he's the only one with the reflection. Everyone in the restaurant is a vampire. Um, I think that's why a lot of people, I guess, skedaddle from, maybe they have like an agreement and some people are human, but they leave at night. I don't know. I'm kind of surprised they didn't realize this man wasn't a vampire. But as soon as they realize it, they're all excited. They're like, oh, this is much better than what we were going to get before. And then so the guy's freaking out. Harold's screaming. And that's when his sister shows up. Apparently she was not dead. I'm assuming she was already undead and he just thought he killed her, but he didn't. And so the vampires run around. They start like closing the curtains and the sister walks in. All their fangs come out and their fangs are really bad. Like they're I mean, not real bad, but they're just real long and thin. You're like, all right. They all look really silly with it. And also his sister, I mean, she looks pretty cool. She's real like thin and lanky with like reddish hair, but she also looks like she's wearing like a set of drapes, this outfit she's wearing. But like she comes in and she's all smiling and they decide to tap him like a keg. And so they all have these wine glasses and they've been t like, they hung him upside down. So this part's kind of cool. They hung him upside down and they like tapped a vein in his neck and they're like just pouring it into this into these glasses and they're all like oh this is much better than frozen and they're all like mm, yeah they're like t testing it like wine they're like mm, a nice bouquet of fragrances and what a good year it's so fresh so they have the scene here and the guy is hanging upside down he's still alive and he's screaming and all the people are around him and they're tapping him and instead of just cutting it or leaving it there they took basically it's like they put it on paint on the app paint and they took a black marker and just colored over it so it literally looks like i was like oh my gosh really like i haven't seen that in a movie that i can really recall like they just kind of blocked it out they're like we don't know what to do to make it pg just take a marker and color it in so you can't see it you can tell what's happening but you can't see it that's edited in this in this movie and it's for just like a split second and so that's the end of his story so it cuts back to the room they're all sitting there you know hanging out moves on to the next story this one's called The Neat Job. I kind of liked this one. I, I liked the Midnight Mess too, but this one was kind of fun for me. The Neat Job is from the Shock Suspense Stories number one. And this is about a man who's very, very neat and very tidy, like obsessively. And his name is Arthur and he married Eleanor and she's played by Glynis Johns and she does a really good job in this. I like her. She's a young trophy wife. So she's a little, little bit younger than him. 
And things are going okay for a little while, but she's a little more of a wild, a wi has a little more of a wild streak in her and just doesn't care to be that neat. Like, it's not like she's a, a slob. She's just not as meticulous as him. And he's just, he cannot handle it. And so it slowly just starts to wear her down to where she becomes paranoid because it's literally getting to the point of like, he keeps a cabinet of supplies in the kitchen, like sauces and things. And he has a chart where like, if you take one, you erase the check mark and after, there's three check marks. And after you erase each one, you got to go to the store and buy some more because it's empty. And she wasn't doing that. And so he goes to make spaghetti like he always does. And there's no sauce and he starts freaking out. And everything downstairs in his basement is filed neatly away and labeled in jars. And he's taking her down there and showing them to her like, this is how everything should be. It drives me crazy if I don't. And she's just like, this is getting ridiculous. And he's basically just like screaming at her and stuff and making her cry. And, and she's becoming so paranoid about it. I don't think he's like hitting her or anything. Like he hasn't hit her or anything. It's just, she, she just doesn't know what to do, you know? She's in this predicament now that she had no idea he was like this, which is like, I'm assuming it was a real fast engagement. And so one day he's at work and she's walking around the house like too afraid to touch anything pretty much. And she ends up spilling something on the couch or, or on the rug and she's panicking and she's looking for like a cleaner. And then she just starts, like everything starts breaking around her. Like she goes to clean it and she like knocks something over. And then she runs back downstairs to get a nail to hang a picture because she put like a hole in the wall. And she ends up knocking all the hammers off the wall. And so she's just losing it because she's like, he's going to kill me when he gets home. And I love their house too in this thing. It's, it's very 70s. It's very cute. Her outfits are cute. Everything's cute. And so he gets home and she's downstairs freaking out. And he's like, I cannot handle this. You know, he just starts screaming at her. Can't you do anything neatly? Can't you do anything neatly over and over? And so she just snaps and she takes a hammer and she neatly puts it into the center of his head. I, I wanted to hang a picture. I came down to the nail. You messed up my whole house. Can't you do anything neatly? Can't you? Can't you do anything neatly? Can't you do anything neatly? Can't you? Can't you do anything neatly? Can't you do anything neatly? And they pause her for like a split second. Her eyes are great in here. Like she's, it's really, it's pretty fun scene. I did like this one. And so time passes and she's, she's gone now. Uh, mentally and it cuts back down to her downstairs and she's cleaned up everything downstairs and she's talking to Arthur and she's like I cleaned everything up just like you wanted and everything is in its place and a place for everything and then that's when you look over and all those jars that he was showing her earlier downstairs are full of his organs and they're all neatly labeled it's all neatly labeled with like stomach and liver and eyes and things and they have everything in there and she's just laughing maniacally and I, I liked this one. This is probably probably my favorite one of all of it. So that moves on to the next one. And this one's called This Trick Will Kill Ya. And it's from the Tales from the Crypt um, edition number 33. This one wasn't too bad. It was it was kind of kind of interesting. I did like the prop work in this one. Even though like Mike watched this with me and, and he said he could see the string a little bit. There's like a rope thing later that he could see the string. And I see it a little bit, but it, I still thought it was kind of fun. So this one is set in, yeah, that's in India. And so Sebastian is the guy in this one. He's a magician. He's on a holiday in India with his wife, Inez, and they're looking for new tricks to do. So they kind of went to like a foreign land to kind of see if they can pick up something interesting. And so they see one guy putting like a kid in a barrel and sticking the knives in and the kid comes out okay and all that stuff. So he's still looking around for tricks to learn and he sees this girl and she's charming this rope out of a basket with this flute. And it goes straight up, like the, the rope comes out like this, like a snake, 
like the, like you do, and it comes out and it stands straight up and she climbs up the rope without anything holding it. And he's mesmerized by this trick. How much? How much do you want for the trick? Name your price. There is no trick. The magic is in the rope. Okay then, sell me the rope. I cannot. It was my mother's, and her mother's, and her mother's. I give you... Forty thousand rupees. It is not for sale. Not at any price. And so he eventually talks her into coming over to his hotel with his wife. He knows there's gonna be a trick to it, and he wants to see it. Him and his wife have her come over, I think for like 200 rupees, and she was gonna show them the trick. And so as she's showing him the trick, the wife's just like laying on the bed watching the trick, like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm hmm And he comes up behind this girl. Uh, I'd say she's more like 20, 22. He takes this knife and stabs her right through the back. It comes out the front of her. It's got a little bit of blood on it. It's kind of an interesting scene. Like, he doesn't seem like he pushes it that hard, but like he gets it through her and like kills her right in front of him and they just like throw her in a closet. So they're like, cool, we have this basket. And so that's when Sebastian takes out the um, flute and starts playing it and the rope starts coming out. So Inez comes over and the, the rope's completely out and she's, you know, mesmerized by it. They both are. They're like, oh crap, I can't believe it's working. And so she's like, okay, well, I'll climb it up, climb or climb up the rope and we'll practice our act. She climbs up the rope and all of a sudden she screams and disappears. She gets to the top of the rope, screams and disappears. And he's like, where'd you go? And then the top of the ceiling in the hotel room um, looks like it starts its period and it starts to bleed all haphazardly. And he's like, what happened? And like she just disappeared. And I guess the ceiling ate her or something. I don't know. So he starts freaking out. And this is where the prop stuff comes in. It's, it's kind of fun. So this rope comes to life and it's being held by little strings, you know, kind of thing. You can't, you can hardly see them, but they start like holding this rope around and it's dancing around and it starts coming after him and like jumping at him and he's fighting and avoiding this rope. It's kind of fun. And then it's, it's making all these like whoops noises and stuff where it's like and it just keeps coming at him and it eventually gets a hold of him wraps around his neck and hangs him. And nothing's holding the rope. It's just like hanging him in the air, which I thought it was a fun effect for the 70s. I, I liked it. Even if the whoopsh was kind of silly, it was still kind of a neat idea. And so the guy from the beginning that was putting the swords into the basket with the little boy, you know, he's doing the trick again, they, or a trick again, and they turn around and they see him hanging in the window. And everyone's just like, yep, you don't mess with that. And then it pans over and that woman's still alive. The one who's playing the flute is still alive. When he dies too, later she was in the room and she was like her dead body was staring at him, you know, all creepy. So like, I guess she can't die. I don't know. So she ends up, she pretty much just got her revenge and then came back. So that was his penance for murder. And actually, now that I think about it, it's kind of weird that in the, in the last story, the neat job, it's kind of weird that that guy is the one that's being punished. I guess the fact that he nagged her, like, that's what the whole thing is. Like, he's not like he was doing anything too crazy. Like, she's the one who murdered him. I'm kind of surprised she's not in the seat. That's kind of weird. Because, like, the first one was murder. The second one, he just was annoying. And really, like, she could have, I mean, she could have left him, but she even said herself in the in the episode to jump back to the, the second one, the neat job. Her father didn't have a lot of money, and she didn't have a profession, so she just kind of, she had to marry him. And I'm like, yeah, and you so... I'm sure multiple, many, many women have had that situation, I'm sure. 
She seems like a nice enough lady, but yeah, it's, I, I'm kind of surprised she's not in that position. The third vignette, this trick will kill you. Sorry, I jumped around. Is over. Sebastian was hung. He's dead. So it moves now to the, the fourth one. And these, this one and the last one, I really didn't care for. Kind of was like a sour ending for me. So this next one is called Bargain and Death. And it's from the Tales from the Crypt edition number 28. In this one, um, there's a man. His name is Maitland. He's buried alive as part of an insurance scam with his friend. And he's like, well, don't leave me in there for too long. You know, no more than 24 hours, you know, because I'll suffocate. And they give him like this pill thing that like slows his heart rate down, makes him look dead. And so this guy, Alex, ends up screwing him over and leaves him to suffocate. In the other part of the story, there's these two doctors who are like in training and their names are Tom and Jerry. Oh God, I just got that. Tom and Jerry. And they want a body to practice on. I will never pass the anatomy course. Mm. Trouble is we can only work in the dissection room for the short periods we're assigned to it. Mm. <laughs> if only we had a body of our own. What? Well, we could work on it when we wanted to. And so they want to go grave dig. So they go and talk to the grave digger, who he was pretty funny. He kind of just like jumps out of nowhere and he's like, hey, sorry to scare you. It's a creepy grave. They talk to him to dig up a corpse. And so the grave digger's helping them out with this fresh grave and it happens to be Maitland's coffin. And he hasn't quite died yet. He's suffocating, but he hasn't quite died yet. So when his coffin is open, he freaks out and he comes jumping up, you know, and scares the crap out of them. So it scares Tom and Jerry, and they end up taking off running, right? This one, it just, it was kind of a quick one, but I don't know. I just, it wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan. So they take off running, or into the middle, in the middle of the road, and Alex, the guy who double-crossed the guy in the coffin, swerves to avoid them, and ends up crashing into the tree and explodes. And it's more just like the hood lights on fire. It wasn't a super crazy explosion. The gravedigger ends up accidentally killing Maitland when he was like digging or I guess either the corpse scared him or something and it, and it hit him in the head and killed him anyway. So like they both die. <laughs> I just saw too like the, uh, the, I just saw the, the crash. There was no one in that car. Like you can tell when it crashes, like they just had a car run into a tree. I don't know. I guess maybe Alex, was Alex going to go get him? Eh, maybe not. Oh, the guy still really had to, the gravedigger had to dig kind of deep. I don't know if Alex was coming to get him or not. I don't think so. Maybe he just happened to be passing by the cemetery. I don't know. It was kind of all over the place a little bit. So it's like the gravedigger ends up killing Maitland. Alex dies. The two guys who were the doctors are freaked out. And I don't think they closed the sale on the corpse, but it cuts away after that. You know, they're just like, what? You know, like they're freaked out. I don't know if they want to be trainer doctors anymore, you know, after this. So that's the end of Bargain and Death. So now it moves on to the last one. And this one, I probably liked the very least. For one, it lasts way too long. It's like a 20 minute, almost like 30 minute vignette. I think it's unnecessary. This one is called Drawn and Quartered. It's from the Tales from the Crypt edition number 26. So Moore is a painter who lives in Haiti. You know it's gonna be some voodoo, right? And he's poor. He learns that he's been getting screwed over because like the people he's been selling his art to have been paying very little for it and then turning it around and selling it for very high prices. And the art dealers are Diltent, Gaskill, and then um, a critic named Fenton. So, since he's in Haiti, he goes to visit this voodoo priest. What do you wish? To buy voodoo. Why? To get revenge on those who wronged me.
What do you do? I'm an artist. Who the hand you paint with? Into pot. And he sticks his hand in this like boiling pot of this guy just like chilling in a hut. And it ends up putting a power over his painting hand. So whatever he paints or like draws or anything can be harmed by hurting the image. Now, that's fine. That's all fine and good. That sounds interesting. It's just when he goes to do it, it doesn't quite work the way you would think. Like, it's not like a voodoo doll situation where, like, if you poke the stomach, your stomach bleeds, you know, bleeds or hurts or whatever. It's a little different, which I thought was kind of dumb. Like, I was hoping to be a little different. So, for some reason, around the same time when he gets this magic hand, he ends up finishing up a self-portrait, which he keeps locked up in this safe. I guess because he was... Almost done, he didn't think about it. So like, if he gets rid of it, he'll kill himself. I don't know. So he's like, I guess I'll just put it in the safe. So he goes back to London and he paints portraits of this, these three guys. And he's like, ha 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 ha. <laughs> he's like, y'all gonna die. So he's sitting there with all his paintings of these guys and he wants to start the revenge. So he, he sits there and he grabs letter opener or something like that. And he takes it and he pokes it into the eyes of the first painting like way deep into the eyes. And at first I was like, oh cool, like maybe the guy's eyes are gonna fall out or just he'll be talking to someone and his eyes will get all messed up. No, what it does is like sets into a chain of events that causes it to be this part is really dumb. Like, so this, it cuts to this guy, him talking to his wife and he's talking to his wife and she's yelling at him because he's having an affair. And so I was expecting like his eyes to just start bleeding or something. And he's like trying to be like, no, I still love you, wife and stuff. And she gets mad and she throws what I thought was just water, which maybe it was, or perfume at his face because she's mad. And it, and it hits him and it like looks like acid and it burns his face. And I guess it gets in his eyes. And so that's how he ends up dying. Yeah, I guess it was some sort of poison. I don't know. They don't really show it. So, so he's dead. So it goes to the second guy. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's do this. So it goes to the next guy. Um, this is Arthur, one of the art dealers. And so for this one, he takes the knife and he starts like slicing along the painting to where it looks like, like it's got the guy's hands and it looks like it cuts through his hands, like his wrists. And so part of me was like, wouldn't that be crazy if his hands just fell off? So it cuts to this Arthur guy and he's at this, I guess they're like, a, it's like a framing department and they're framing and they got one of those giant like paper cutter things. The ones that like a shink when it comes down that you'd have at school. The one, it's a lot bigger and more a little more industrial looking, but it's like the one, if you've seen The Faculty, that horror movie from like 1998 or something, and the one where Jon Stewart gets his fingers chopped off by it. It's one of those things, but a little different. So he's yelling at the guy about not cutting it right, and it ends up coming down and, and slicing both of his hands off. This one wasn't too bad. Like, he, he goes to put the paper under, and he's got his hands under, and he's not paying attention, he's smoking a pipe, and then his hands just like shoot off all bloody, and it, it wasn't too bad. And he's screaming. But I'm guessing the guy's just, he's, maybe he's just not killing them. Because technically, I mean, he wouldn't, he's not going to die from that, I don't think. It just mutilated him, with it, which I guess, I mean, does that matter as an art dealer? I don't feel like that guy really got a whole thing. Considering these other guys, I, the other two guys, I think, die. It cuts now, uh, he's going to take out the third dude. He goes over to talk to this guy and he takes the picture out and he has it in front of him. And he's like, well, now it's your turn. You have two minutes to live. Like, he really wants to rub it in for this last guy which I think is the, the critic, the um, art critic or whatever, Fenton. And so this guy is all like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to die in two minutes. He pulls out a gun and he's pointing it at Moore and Moore's like, mm, well, we'll see about that. And so he hangs up the picture of Fenton and he's, and he's looking at him 
And he looks right at Fenton and he takes like a little red marker and just like draws a circle in the middle of his eyes up on his forehead. I was kind of hoping with this one that like a laser beam gun was going to point at his head or something. But instead, what this did is it made Fenton pull the gun on himself, which it was a kind of a neat scene, the way he was struggling. Like he, he basically, he's going to go shoot him and then he just ends up turning it, pointing him at himself and shoots himself right in the head. And that's how he dies. And you're like, all right, fine. Right after he shoots himself, Moore comes over with the picture and like stands next to him and points, like lays it next to him, which I'm like, kind of gives you it away, I guess, if you leave the picture there, if you signed it. I don't know if he's leaving the picture there or not. And I don't really have a chance to find out because Moore starts feeling like he can't breathe all of a sudden. And you find out because he has his picture in this safe, the air is running out in this little safe and it's making him feel like he's suffocating, even though he hasn't done anything to the picture. And I'm like, well, that took a long time. He feel like you in a small safe like that, you would have felt that already. So he has to take his picture out. So that makes him paranoid. I guess he's, I think he's back. Yeah, he's back in his studio. And it's kind of like under the ground a little bit, but there's like an opening with a window and like the city above it. He's in his studio and he leaves it there and he decides to head out. And he's trying, I guess, to just forget about it or head somewhere. I don't know. He's in a rush for something. I, let me, let me be honest with you. So the first time I went and watched this movie, it really wasn't holding my attention a whole lot. So I had to go back and watch it a second time because I was like, okay, I know I'm missing something. And I liked it better the second time. I still didn't like these last two um, sections, but I like it better. So he's basically, <laughs> Moore is out there. He's getting a taxi. He seems a little frantic, but I'm, I, I can't quite remember where he's going. And as he's running around, there's a guy above where his studio was on like a billboard. And he ends up hitting this thing of like turpentine that breaks through the window of his studio just happens to land on the painting, smearing the painting of his face. And that's when this truck comes by and runs him over and literally runs his face over. And they, I mean, they don't show anything, but it's like it, it runs his face over and then the truck stops. And so that's how he dies because this turpentine fell on his face and made his face look like it was melting. I don't know. It just, it, yeah, because he had like a skylight in his apartment. Uh, it was just, it, it was okay. Like I said, it lasted like a half an hour. It took forever. And so it cuts back to the room where the five guys are sitting. And now that I think about it and I'm looking at these guys and I realize the name I said, um, in this la the last section, Drawn and Quartered, Moore is played by Tom Baker. Just occurred to me that that is the fourth doctor from, the doc from Doctor Who. So if any of you guys out there watch Doctor Who, it's one of the older ones. But like Tom Baker played him for seven seasons, the longest that anyone's played um, the doctor. He was the doctor from 1974, so right after this, he became the doctor in Doctor Who until 1981. When I saw that name just for a second, I was like, Tom Baker, why does that sound familiar? I'm not, I mean, I don't watch a lot of Doctor Who, but I know some of the, the doctor stuff. Yeah, so my bad. That's another person I know. So anyway, cuts back to these guys and they're all hanging out back in the room. And they're like, well, maybe this is like a warning of something that's happening or could happen. And they're like, nah. And then all of a sudden, the a red flashing light dings above the elevator door. And they all stand up. They're all like, oh, cool. Like, we can get out of here. And so they head over to the elevator and they all stand in front of the door. And when it opens, it's not a room. It's a graveyard. And instantly, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I got it. Okay. So it's similar to 1972's Tales from the Crypt in a way. So these five guys are standing there. Then they, it's kind of neat because like they, they look out into the graveyard. And then when they turn back around to kind of look, they're not in that room anymore. It's more just like a atrium kind of thing that they're standing in and so they just one by one or you know just start slowly I guess a couple of amount of time yeah they all walk out there and they all walk into the graveyard and they disappear and then the last guy 
uh, Sebastian hangs out and he ends up explaining that their souls that were damned to tell the story of what they did wrong for all eternity. That's how it is. And how it always will be. Night after night, we have to retell the evil things we did when we were alive. Night after night, for all eternity. He turns back again, looks into the room that's empty, and disappears. And then the elevator door slams shut, and that's the end of the movie. That's basically it. These five dudes have to tell their stories of how they were evil every night for all eternity, and then they disappear to the graveyard. The one guy, I really don't think, did anything too crazy. He just nagged his wife a lot, so I'm still kind of confused about that one. The last uh, vignette there, he, he did kill the people too, even though they screwed him over. But I don't know, it's kind of weird to me that some of them don't seem all that bad. That's That neat job wasn't that, that bad. But yeah, that's the end of 1973's Fault of Horror. Did I like it as much as Tales from the Crypt? No. No, I did not. The first three sections were fine. Um, the second one, the neat job, I actually really liked. But then it just kind of flew downhill for me. Would I give it? Would I recommend it? Yeah, sure. If, if you've seen a lot of the Tales from the Crypt area movies or you just want to give it a whirl because it's from the 70s and it's a horror film, maybe check out the Blu-ray edition from Scream Factory if you can. I eventually will probably watch that down the road just to see some of those parts. But I, I preferred 1972's Tales from the Crypt better. But this still had some things to it that were, were worth checking out. I have a little bit of information here about the production and the reception of the movie. In the segment Bargain and Death, that's the one with the faking of the, the insurance scam and stuff. The guy Maitland can be seen reading a copy of the novelization of the earlier amicus film Tales from the Crypt. So he's reading like a book from the movie of the 1972 version. So I was like, ah, ha, ha. Like I said earlier, Midnight Mess features a brother and sister who were playing brothers and sisters that was played by Anna Massey and Daniel Massey. The tower featured in the opening scenes is the Millbank Tower in London. So the reception for this movie, <laughs> it had a couple, it was pretty, from what Wikipedia says here, it was fairly dismissive. Roger Greenspun of the New York Times apparently wrote that of the several distinguished actors who appeared in the film, quote, none is ever quite so bad as the material warrants. Variety also said quality for it is the, the material is uneven. Some of them, I mean, for the 70s, they were saying some of it was funny and comedy and some of it was gross and less satisfactory than Tales from the Crypt is what Tom Milne of the Monthly Film Bulletin wrote. And he said that was because mainly the Freddie Francis atmospherics had been replaced by pedantically flat direction by Roy Ward Baker in which each story plods squarely through yards of exposition before erupting in all too brief explosions of grand Gwignol. What does Gwignol mean? I'm gonna look up that Gwignol real quick. Basically, a lot of people didn't like it, from what I can tell here. And I assume they saw, I'm assuming, yeah, they saw the rated R version. I wouldn't say it was, well, I mean, there was a lot of exposition to it. And then, yeah, the ends were always, like, kind of crazy. Okay, so the Grand Guignol, if anyone cares, means the Great Puppet. It was a French theater that showed naturalistic horror shows. Oh, okay, so its, it's name is used often for graphic, amoral, horror entertainment, or like comparing to today's splatter films. Okay. So yeah, so he's basically saying all too brief explosions of just being grotesque and crazy and gory and things like that, which I'm, again, I didn't see that version, so I couldn't really say. 
from what I could tell in Morning Mess, the blood looked like tomato juice. So I don't know. It wasn't quite as orange as 1972's Tales from the Crypt. I will give it that. Radio Times gave the film two stars out of five, describing it as a, quote, formulaic horror movie. British actors such as Terry Thomas and Daniel Massey bring a touch of class to an otherwise pedestrian production, end quote. However, the same magazine later revised its rating, giving the film three stars. So I guess they changed their mind. But it was still fine. I mean, I definitely prefer the other one better, 1972's one, but this is my review of it. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for downloading and for listening. And yeah, have a good one. You can check out the Good Evening Podcast on Facebook. You can check it out pretty much wherever podcasts are found. I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me at Podcast. That's at G-E-K Podcast. I'm also on Spotify. This is all over the place, guys. So thanks for checking this out. I just had quite a scare. I actually thought my heart.